How to Be an Artist. Step 25, Walkable Cities, with guest Jeff Speck. Okay, well, Jeff Speck, uh, thank you so much for being with me today. Appreciate you being here. My pleasure. Awesome. So just by way of a little introduction, uh, one of the reasons I want to have you here is, is I feel um, principles of urbanism are really important to to artists um, thinking about art and, and how to maximize your your abilities um, as an artist. And so um, Walkable City is one of your books, and that's probably one of the top, um, my top three books I recommend on urbanism, like probably that, Suburban Nation and, and Strong Towns. Um, mm-hmm are my three faves and they usually are pretty accessible. So, um, yeah. And you've got, you've got two of the three there. So strong towns and and Chuck Marone are fantastic. Uh, suburban nation. I also wrote, so that's good. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Two out of three. It's pretty good. Pretty good record. So (laughs) I, I co-wrote, I co-wrote suburban nation with my more uh, illustrious uh, mentors, Andres Duani and Elizabeth Plater-Zyberg. But as the young, uh, writer and, and, ideator of the book i i did the full first draft so i i can say i wrote it but it was a ah. a joint effort excellent yeah i remember you say something in the acknowledgments about that and i kind of want to ask about that story maybe we can get that just a little bit later about how um suburbanation was initiated as a project um yeah. but uh i thought it'd be interesting first since as i was reading i i re- read through walkable city again um to prepare for this and um, there's well, a lot of things I, should, I picked I up. I should have also. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Hopefully I've, I, I took good enough notes to, to remind you. Um, but I, I was really interested to find that you actually began your education with art history mm-hmm. and then kind of moved from art history to architecture and then eventually urban planning. Um, and so I wonder if you could just kind of walk us through a little bit of, of that path of, of how you kind of started with, with art history and, and ended up you know, planning cities. Yeah, I was an art history major <clears throat> because I couldn't be an architecture major. I I, ah. uh, I went to a liberal arts school where that wasn't a choice. I chose to mm-hmm. go to a liberal arts school, uh, Williams College, because um, I did want a broad ranging, um, you know, deep thinking liberal arts degree, and not not didn't did not want to focus too soon in any one kind of professional direction. But I had a feeling since I was maybe 10 years old that I was going to be an architect or a designer of some sort. And um, I was just in no hurry to get there. I, I had also worked for a couple of architects over summers who had basically said to me, if you can do anything else with your life, choose that. <laughs> because they were, maybe I picked the wrong architects. So they were, they were uh, very frustrated. And I think you find a lot of people in the profession mm-hmm. uh, who find it isn't what they thought it was, or the the heroic Howard Rourke kind of, uh, or even you know Frank Gehry image of what the architect is, and even even as you work your way through architecture school, which I did, eventually, um, the kind of architect that you, th- the kind of activity that you think architects do, even when you are getting your graduate degree, um, is quite different from what you end up doing as an architect, and that can be very frustrating mm-hmm. to a lot of people. So I, I had been. Um, warned against that career, and in fact, I was briefly an investment banker after college because it was oh, okay. the 80s. Those You're were almost fun. wise, yeah. That was that was a chance to move to New York and earn some money to pay for subsequent education. 
Um, but I was an art history major undergrad because I was most interested in architecture and that was the path to learning more about architecture. I did uh, quickly fall in love with art history. And hmm. it's funny because I never liked history. I never found it hmm. that interesting. Um, and it wasn't until I was getting a master's in art history, which I earned in Italy, um, that I realized that art history is just history, but you're using hmm. the primary, the primary documentation that you're using, and you're not using much secondary documentation, um, is the works of arts themselves, the works of art themselves. So, um, so I ended up majoring in, I ended up learning. I mean, I, I enjoyed painting. I enjoyed sculpture. I enjoyed all the arts. Um, but I ended up learning a lot more about all the arts than I had ever intended and fell in love with the idea of um, looking at a piece of art, be it a building or a painting or something else, and uh, kind of driving through it to the cultural forces behind it uh, and mm. thinking about how it relates to the society which it grows out of. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of had this feeling I was going to be an architect and I took a long path to get there. But uh, our art history was, uh, I, I don't regret it at all. And, and uh, to elaborate a little bit, what, what happened was uh, I took a junior semester abroad in Florence and, of course, fell in love with Florence. And then when I was an investment banker, I learned that there was a, something called the Florence Fellowship that Syracuse University offers to four students a year in art history in Florence. And I was fortunate enough to, <laughs> to, to win that. So I took that fellowship and... Um, you know, a little cash I'd earned on Wall Street and had a wonderful 18 months in Italy <laughs> before, before, going, before going back to, to school for architecture, which was another four years of school. So I was 30 years old when I got out of college, got out wow. of school. Now I'm guessing that you probably had a pretty good grounding in like Renaissance type stuff then with your art history background. And in being Renaissance? In Italy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the program in Florence was focused on the Renaissance. Yeah. Actually, I, I wrote my uh, my thesis on the architecture of the chapel in the Palazzo Medici. In, wow. In that was a lot of fun. Very, very interesting. Cool. And how, at what point did, did you start thinking about kind of broadening out from, from, I mean, or, or maybe you consider it to be inclusive of, but kind of getting more into like urban planning and as far as how those things connect I mean, there does seem to be a bit of a seed of that just in the art history as far as saying, here are these works of art and how do, how do those connect to culture, which seems to kind of connect to urban planning. Well, I think, you know, I was always interested in the relationship between architecture and society, right? So mm -hmm. I wrote my thesis in undergrad thesis. We did those when I was there um, <laughs> on uh, what I called the architectural gap, the distinction between popular and professional taste in architecture. And I was fascinated by the fact still that for the most part, the architecture that architects enjoy and the architecture that the public enjoys are not entirely or very much the same thing. Sure. And yeah. uh, I, I dove very deeply into the, the, the sources of that, of that gap and wrote, I think, a very good essay on how it had happened. And then I completely blew it in the conclusions about how to resolve the problem because it was the heat of the postmodern movement and hmm. uh, you know the 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 leading uh, you know magazine cover gaining architecture at that time in the mid 80s was a lot of kind of silly retro uh, neoclassical but not accurate kind of uh, tongue in cheek stuff by folks like Philip Johnson and Charles Moore 
And um, and I said, here it is. We've solved the problem. But of course, now in retrospect, most people think that was a kind of a kitschy uh, movement hmm. that steered away from the essence of what architecture is about. Um, sure. But uh, the interest in city planning was not really there at that point. But I realized, you know, if, if I'm concerned about architecture and its intersection with society, you, you eventually learn. And I certainly learned this when I worked at the National Endowment for the Arts, which I can talk about more, um, sure. that the larger the scale of design, the more impact it has on people's lives. So I kind mm. of shifted from an architecture and society attitude to an architecture for <laughs> society attitude and realizing yeah. that um, if one is to use design to improve um, the lot of our fellow citizens and ourselves, um, then the larger scale at which you operate, the more impact you can have. Also, interestingly, the larger scale at which you operate in the U.S., at least the worse it's done. So, <laughs> um, you know, if you think about it, we design wonderful phones and, and uh, wristwatches and other things and, you know, pretty cool automobiles. And the larger you get, though, I mean, our houses really aren't well designed and our, our cities uh -huh. are poorly designed. Our regions are designed hardly at all, even though in other parts of the world they are designed. People do do regional planning in a way that matters. In the U.S., it's it actually a, works. a real mess. Hmm. Um, so it was, it was kind of a combination of asking the question, you know, how can architecture be more impactful, but also stumbling in the late 80s, really in, in mid-80s, stumbling in the mid-80s and then having a relationship in the late 80s, um, uh, stumbling across the work of this movement in in urban design um, that was kind of we've been waiting for for about 40 years, which was the new urbanism. And the okay, new urbanism, yeah. which at that point was called traditional town planning, um, was the brainchild of this husband and wife team, Andres Duani and Elizabeth Plater Zyberg, who um, for the first time in half a century asked the question, how can we make a new place that's modeled on the old places that we love? Mm -hmm. So uh, if you study the history of city making or land development in the U.S., um, the modern history, you, you see that, that uh, you know, it was really at its peak in terms of quality of placemaking in the early 20th century, especially in the 20s, when um, uh, certainly in the design of new communities, like you know, every city has one of these, Coral Gables, Florida, um, um, uh, Beverly Hills in L.A., uh, Shaker Heights in Cleveland, Marymount in Cincinnati, Chestnut Hill in Boston, you know, every 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 city just about has its early 20th century subdivisions, which were designed by developers for profit, um, but which actually brought together the best in town planning technique and great land use concepts like the mixed use town center, as opposed to, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the shopping mall. And um, uh, what happened was, of course, there was the depression. So nothing was built for mm -hmm. a decade. And then you had World War II. So nothing was built almost for another decade. Those skills were all lost. And then in conjunction with that, modernist planning theory took over, which said explicitly, we must separate every use from every other use. And this was the outgrowth growth of the success of hygienic planning, you know, from the 19th century, when lifespans were increased by removing houses from where the factories were. And of course, you know, making better, you know, less crowded and um, more dispersed 
developments, but the wrong lesson was learned from that, which was that by the early mid 20th century, U.S. planners like Norman Bel Geddes, who created the show Futurama at the 1939 World's Fair, said explicitly, and I've never understood this statement, for greater convenience, we must separate housing from work and work from shopping and everything from everything else. Huh. How that makes life more convenient, <laughs> still scratching my head over. But, but that was the advent then of, in, in the same way that we won the Second World War through specialization, right? We were so good at sorting yeah. and segregating and distributing our munitions and our, uh, you know, fuel and everything else during the war. And, and these folks came back from the war. There's a book by William White called The Whiz Kids that describes this phenomenon of all these, uh, you know, allocators and sorters and uh, um, problem solvers who came back from the war and just started sorting everything. <laughs> and one of, the yeah, things that was, yeah. one of the things that was sorted was the landscape into places where you only live, you know, housing subdivisions, places where you only shop, the, the shopping center and then the shopping mall um, and eventually the big box store. And then uh, places where you only work, the office park. And this had never been how we had built cities before. And someone decided that based on this in incredible new invention of the automobile and the presumption that everyone would be driving everywhere and that that would be good for us, which was never asked whether, mm -hmm. you know, losing 40,000 people a year in car crashes and however many to, uh, you know, particulate matter asthma. And of course the obesity that comes from not walking anywhere. No one asked whether it was good for us, but the decision was made um, to separate the landscape into these pieces and reconnect them only with highways. And um, for, for about 40 years, nothing was built in the U.S. except for single-use pods. And of course, yeah. meanwhile, our center cities were being decanted into the suburban hinterlands and um, suffering tremendously as a result of that. So the, the husband and wife of Andres Duany and Elizabeth Plater-Zyberg became known as DPZ, they were asked by this developer, Robert Davis, who had a parcel of land in the Redneck Riviera, um, seaside, for, well, it was called uh, Fort Walton Beach, Florida, and said, asked them, you know, could we put a, could we actually put a resort town here? And they said, town? What do you mean? And together they kind of realized that not only does, do, you know, not only is the place, are the places that we all love the most, these traditionally organized uh, you know, uh, developments, but also that it was illegal, essentially illegal to do it in most of the U.S. Fortunately, sure, in, the case, yeah. in the case of Seaside, there were very few rules in this kind of rural waterfront location. And so they did it in Seaside. And it became a bit of a poster child that I discovered in the mid 80s. It was designed in 1980. I discovered it. So it was, already, it was already built before you came on the scene as far as... I wouldn't say it was partly built. These things take about, you know, depending, they take between five and 50 years to complete. Right. But sure. Yeah. Seaside was largely built by then. And, you know, and it's, it's an anomaly. It's a resort. It's super cute. It was used for the Truman show, which is a, a kind of, a <laughs> I didn't know that. yeah, it was the scene of the Truman show. And it's an, that's, you know, an indictment of what it was because it's fake in almost every way. In fact, they ripped out lots of natural uh, landscape and put in, decorative kind of lollipop style trees and other things to make it look more artificial when they film the movie. But the point is it's, it's poo pooed by a lot of people because it's not really a city. 
uh, and it's brand new and it's for wealthy people, although it was not originally for wealthy people, it just became so incredibly loved and valued that the house house slots that originally sold for $20,000 have quickly skyrocketed to eventually half a million dollars. Hmm. And um, so fortunately, though, people were able to see through the the um, the medium to the message and the message is, hey, we can or we, at least we should be allowed to design new places in the manner of the old places that we love, period. Yeah. And that began a movement uh, that has rewritten the laws of planning that is kind of now the dominant way that the planning profession thinks. Um, hmm. Uh, that's one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is still 95% of what's built in the U.S. is conventional car-oriented sprawl of the worst sort. So we've kind of, you know, the, 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 by this point, the captain has ordered the ship to turn around because it spotted the iceberg, right? But it takes yeah. a long, it takes takes a long, long time. It takes a long time to turn the ship. But anyway, sticking more to just the history. So I learned about them in the mid-80s. Uh, in 89, I needed a summer job between my art history school and my um, architecture school, and they had a Boston office. Oh, and wow. I was fortunate enough, was willing to take me on for the summer, and that began a relationship that, that remains to this day. But um, uh, it led to when I graduated from architecture school, I spent a decade at DPZ. I also spent, spent a summer um as assistant town architect in the Kentlands, which was a very large DPZ development outside of Washington, D.C., that mm -hmm. kind of the second important project that they did. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, it's funny. Uh, there was a book called Cross Currents in American Architecture, like a fancy magazine that my brother got me for a birthday present in the mid 80s. I forget what year. I think it was around 88. And um, there's a the story and images, pictures, plans uh, from Seaside are in that book. And I have I have the, the sketchbook, which I was taking notes from it. And I wrote in a non-rhetorical fashion, I wrote at the bottom of one of the pages, if you're interested in urban design, find these guys. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. And uh, I wasn't sure if I was interested, but once I met them, once I got to know Andres and Liz, understood the seriousness of the mission, understood that it was exactly about the intersection of daily life and human needs and design. Um, it became clear to me that I could have a much more uh, exciting and a meaningful career in design uh, operating at that scale. Um, I'm sorry. So I'm not remembering. I'm not remembering the name of the poet, but someone once said to affect the quality of the day, that is the highest of arts. And, you know, to me, that's what city planning is all about. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Um, I th it seems kind of one of the, th the themes I, that I was thinking about a lot as I was reading that this time is is this very interesting intersection between like aesthetics and, and function, which is even kind of represented in in kind of the outline of the book, which is something we, we can get to. Um, but just as, as a last little question. So, um it, then the initiation of of uh, suburban nation as as a book did that come? You must have already been been working with DPZ at that time, and well, I, at some I, point, I, I started my summer job, and I heard Andre or it was it was sorry I hadn't yet started my summer job, but I heard Andre speak at the Boston Museum of Fine Arts in 1989, mm. and at that point, and for 
a decade after or more, he was barnstorming the country, giving a talk called um, Towns versus Sprawl or something yeah, like that. You can still find group. it on YouTube too, by the way. Yeah, you can find the 1989 Andres Duany Boston Museum of Fine Arts talk on YouTube. And I highly recommend it both as, a, as an educational experience and as a period piece. Uh, remarkable. <laughs> uh, you know, the quality of the video is really not sure. so good. And, but, um, but I heard that talk and I never had my mind blown, blown mm. in two hours. <laughs> um, like, like I had in that experience. And I, I really recommend it to any of your listeners who care about design. Um, I, I hope that my recent talks have similar impact. Uh, and in fact, my talks steal quite uh, you know, happily from Andres's and, and I can yeah. talk about that as well. But I the, had a, I had a very, just to interrupt, I had a very similar experience with suburban nation and, and that presentation myself. It's you, you don't go back to seeing things the same way after you. Yeah. You well, I get, I get emails yeah. regularly from people who say, damn you. I hate where I live now. <laughs> um, thanks to what I've, you've taught me. Um, yeah. But it was basically this talk about why we love certain places and hate others and these feelings mm -hmm. are somewhat universal. Uh, how the places we love grew to be, came to be, and how the places we don't love came to be. Um, and what we can do about it and how there's tremendous impediments that we have to get around, but we can, particularly uh, laws and codes and uh, conventional mm -hmm. practice. Um, but I heard the talk and the first thing I thought was, well, this is the best story I've ever heard. Like, this is just so compelling because I kind of, understood it viscerally, but I did not understand it intellectually. So it hmm. placed a whole intellectual framework around feelings that I think many of us share. Um, That's and when really you, cool. when, when a, when a, a book or a, you know, speaker allows you to better understand your own thoughts and feelings, it's tremendously powerful. Mm -hmm. um, secondly, I thought this needs to be a book. This absolutely needs to be a book. And I had some um, previous experience, previous experience with publishing and publishers. And I knew a, a path to take to pursue that. And I, in fact, wrote Andres and Liz a letter that summer when I was working with them. I wrote them a letter and I said, um, this needs to be a book. I would be very happy to ghostwrite it for you. Um, let's make this happen. And they never wrote me back. <laughs> <laughs> but we stayed in touch and I ended up working for them a subsequent summer. And then they hired me in 93. When I came out of school, I moved to Miami to the urbanist Mecca. Um, at least if you're into new urbanism, Miami was the Mecca. Um, and uh, over the course of the next five years, essentially convinced them that we needed to write the book. The book could have come out virtually the same. It came out in 2000. It could have come out virtually the same book in 1990. And it's hmm. actually really good that it didn't because it would not, it would have been too, too mind blowing for people to, by the timing was better. They bought it in 2000 and it was, I'm pretty sure it was the best selling urban design book between that was written uh, in that decade, um, hmm. 2000 to 2010. Um, Good. And uh, <laughs> the, the experience you had reading it is just the experience I had hearing Andres. And hmm. yeah. once, once a conference, once a conference, someone comes up to me and says, I'm a city planner because, well, actually it depends on their age. If they're in their, you know, if they're 25 to 35, they tell me maybe it was a walkable city that got them hooked. But if, if they're sure. over 30, 
they usually say it's because of suburban nation that I'm a city planner. And I say, uh, well, first of all, my apologies, you know, <laughs> how's it going for you? <laughs> secondly, um, secondly, though, um, just the gratitude you feel for me, you should really feel for Andres and Liz, because it was hearing them talk about their work that uh, gave me the same experience and led to the creation of the book. So just paying it forward in that way. Awesome. Well, cool little bit of history. Um, yeah, I think it'd be good to to jump now into a um, little bit of a, a description of what walkability means and, and why that's important. And you've already given a little bit of that explanation as far as talking about um, this trend where we kind of lost, uh, you know, we lost this old way of doing things, this traditional way of doing things. Um, but maybe you could talk a little bit about that of, of maybe what the definition is of walkability. So people, I mean, I mean when I first here walkability makes me think like, oh, you need to have sidewalks. And that's about as far as my mind goes, you know, or probably initially that's, that's where I was. So maybe what's, what's the definition and, and why it's important. And then we can. Well, it's my, there. you know, it's, it's, it's my definition. So okay, there, there are other ways to define it. I think um, it's important to understand that I use walkability as a tool. Um, I use it as a framework and what I've found kind of accidentally is that it's the best way to talk about what we want to talk about, which is good mm -hmm. urban design. Yeah. So uh, I, when I, when I began to see the uptake that I was getting and the response that I was getting, um, and the ability to communicate that this term was allowing me, uh, I embraced it. Um, but a lot of people come at walkability from other angles, particularly mere um, safety and access. Um, you know, can people get to the transit stop? Can they get to their jobs? You know, are, are people in underserved communities able to safely get around? I mean, those are all very important things. But for me, I use it as a way to describe, to test, and ultimately to dictate techniques of planning. Hmm. And that last category is interesting because I um, never really meant for the term to, the term to take over, but actually... By, by carefully enumerating what characterizes walkability and getting into great detail about how that's accomplished, that's actually made me a lot better planner. So now when hmm. I look back to the theories that kind of grew out of the observation of what walking means in our communities, um, I can see that if I hadn't framed it this way, I be, wouldn't be doing what I was trying to do in the first place was just make better places. So um, I define walkability and I use what you've read is my general theory of walkability yeah. to, to explain how you can get people to make the choice to walk in a nation in which most people have that choice. So with the caveat and the super important caveat that, that 30% of us don't drive, um, hmm. we're either yeah. too, young, too old, too poor, too infirm, or some other reason, uh, too drunk. <laughs> we are not there are 30 percent of us are not driving and probably more of us shouldn't be driving um yeah for sure that that actually it's fundamentally insane you know but when you create a society in which the automobile is no longer an instrument of freedom but a but a prosthetic device that you need just to live your daily life it's incredible the amount of people who that um makes non-viable who makes dependent on others and the number of people who then take on these roles of having others depend on them in ways that shouldn't be happening. You know, the, the yeah. soccer mom or dad that didn't exist before 
1950 because they weren't needed because kids could get where they were going when we designed our communities better. Uh, and then of course the, the phenomenon of all the elderly people who end up warehoused in institutions, because once they lose their driver's licenses, they live in, in environments in which walking or doddering <laughs> is not yeah. viable means to, to get around. So um, first acknowledging that we've created a horrible circumstance in which this is kind of normal, but in which most people have a car or access to a car or someone driving them around. Um, we asked the question, oh, and also acknowledging that choices are made in our community based on the will of the, the powerful majority, right? It's not just the majority, sure. but it's the majority of people who, have, who are empowered. And, you know, that's why highways get so much funding uh, over transit, because, you know, who's on transit and who's on the highways, mm -hmm. right? It's the, mm -hmm. the, power maintain, the powerful maintain their wealth and their power um, by reinforcing the systems that benefit them, not to get too Marxist on you. But the, the, um, in those circumstances, then, the way to build a society in which walking is once again valued and valuable is to ask, how can we cause the typical person to make the choice to walk instead of drive? It's an entirely an environmental question. What environment are we providing? And does that environment make walking useful, safe, comfortable, and interesting? You have to do mm -hmm. all four of those things. And if you don't do all four of them, people with a choice, who are the powerful people who tend to determine the shape of our society, will choose to drive. And then the society will shape itself around that choice. So um, the, the useful walk we already talked about, right? It was the, mm -hmm. the, the, the fundamental step you could do to make a society in which walking is useless is to separate everything from everything else and to not can Even if you connect nodes with transit, you haven't created a walkable environment because you know what ha what happens when you you know you're, you're not going to connect you're not going to connect the shopping mall which might be a transit stop to the um you know 13th street on a housing subdivision that is yeah. in its own spot somewhere else on the landscape so um the idea that we build mixed-use communities in the form of traditional neighborhoods again which has a very precise planning definition five-minute walks from edges to centers and um, mm. um, uh, diverse land uses and most of your daily needs, not all your needs and not your weekly needs necessarily, but most of your daily needs within walking distance is the fundamental first choice you can make uh, in designing communities or in, in improving existing places like America's downtowns. You look at that balance of uses and you ask what's missing or underrepresented. And in most mm. American downtowns, that's housing. It's different yeah. in other other countries, other places, but um, in most American cities, the place that's most ready to be walkable, if it isn't already, um, is the densest downtown urban core. It's the place where you can introduce mixed use without people chasing you away with pitchforks. Uh, <laughs> you know, if you try and if you try to introduce commercial activity to a subdivision, you won't get very far. But if you try to introduce housing to a downtown, there's actually a ton of people who it's want to, to live in it downtown. So um, the, Jane Jacobs knew this back in the late 50s, even uh, the key to having a vital downtown is to put people there. And uh, that's been a huge part of our work. And then, of course, zooming out a little bit uh, at the regional scale or even at the citywide scale, transit is essential in connecting those walkable parts to each other, uh, because if you don't make all of the 
walkable parts of your city uh, accessible on foot to each other on foot, then uh, I mean, sorry, if you, if, you, if you make it so that, you know, these, these parts are in a, in a larger city are too far apart from each other to, um, to just walk, walk and walk, right? You can't walk for half a day. So sure. how, are you, how are you connecting them? And if you don't connect them with transit that allows you to get on and get off in walkable places, then people will make the choice to, to own a car. Yeah. So, you know, <clears throat> that's category one. Yeah. And if I could kind of interject as far as like the needs of the artist are concerned, I mean, the, the fact of the matter is um, a lot of times uh, artists are very close. To, I mean, this this whole cliche of being a starving artist is is pretty close to the truth. Yeah. And when you have to worry about the expense of a car, which I've heard different estimates. I think I saw something like uh, AAA said like $8,000 a year to own a car. Um, obviously, the time it takes to 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 commute in the car and, and get to everything. Um, but, you know, as an artist, you want to be able to have as much freedom to be able to to work on stuff that's important to you artistically. And and that can be a lot harder when you when. I guess owning a car is part of what you have to, the price you have to pay to be part of the society, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Ivan Illich back in the 60s, he did the math. And this was back when we spent a lot less of our money on transportation. In fact, between 1970 and the current day, we doubled the percentage of our income that we spent on transportation because wow. of the incredibly inefficient automobile dependent system that we've created. But back in the 70s, Ivan Illich did the math and he said, uh, he, he demonstrated that if you add up the speed with which a car moves in traffic and then also add to the time, the time you spend working to pay for the car and yeah. all, the costs, <laughs> all the costs associated with the car, um, you're moving at three miles an hour, which is the speed you can walk. Um, so yeah. uh, you've actually gained nothing in terms of your well-being, except to be less healthy. Yeah, I might be kind of paraphrasing, but if there was some point in in Walkable City that says something like, "We we move farther, but we're not actually moving faster." Like, we're actually, not- we, no, we move farther and faster, but we're not uh, accessing any 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 more things. <laughs> yeah, so when yeah. a city like Atlanta, when a city like Atlanta grows, um, the the principal thing it achieves is to have people travel greater distances, but they end up spending considerably more, <laughs> they end up spending considerably more tra- time in traffic and, and they're much less mm. productive. Um, so use, the useful walk is very straightforward. The safe walk is where I spend most of my time because it's, it's the thing that cities can fix quickly. It's the part mm. of the city that the city typically owns, except for a few county and state roads in their downtowns. Most cities own most of their streets and those cities that care about the safety of their citizens and the health of their citizens are making major investments, as you're aware, in not just you know sidewalks and bike infrastructure, but in making changes that make streets less deadly. Um, yeah, absolutely. Simple, simple changes to the width of a lane, the number of lanes, the direction of travel, changing one-way systems that used to be two-way back to two-way, which I've been doing in a lot of cities, calms traffic, tremendously multi-lane one-way streets are are incredibly unsafe yeah so one of my experiences uh personal experiences with, with this was uh you know we live in kind of a first ring suburb of salt lake city um about maybe 10 minute drive from from the city core and we have fairly small streets so it's we're living in one of these neighborhoods that's that has streets that are much smaller than than the streets most people think about when they think about salt lake city and our, our son was hit by a truck 
while uh, while riding his bike. And this gets to, and you know, he he with you know, thank God he he was okay for the most part. You know, it was still a pretty traumatic experience. But uh, we attribute a lot of that to the fact that um, we're in this place where cars move a lot slower. And yeah. the one statistic that really jumped out out to me reading the book this last time is the difference between. 20 miles per hour and 40 miles per hour as far as, as the speed of cars. I wonder if you could like speak to that a little bit. Well, I mean, 20 miles an hour, you're very likely to survive and 40 miles an hour, you're almost certain to die. Um, mm. And the way I, I interpret the statistics, which I think is most uh, instrumental for my work is that um, you are seven times as likely to be killed by a car going 35 than you are by a car going 25. And that mm, 10 mile wow. an hour zone, you know, between 25 and 35 is where many cars are traveling in our cities, depending on how we've detailed the landscape. Um, there's the whole 20 is plenty movement across Europe and now parts of the U.S. that is is really important. But you can't just sign it. Right. What we've learned is yeah. that the, 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 the posted speed limits, unless you have incredibly, uh, you know, incredibly vigilant and consistent enforcement, the posted speed limits have very little impact on the speed that people drive, but there's about a hundred environmental cues that determine people drive because people drive the speed at which they feel safe. And if you're a teenage right? boy, it's the speed at which you feel dangerous, but the speed is regulated by the environment. So uh, what are those factors and how can we impact them? You know, block size is super important. Smaller blocks are a lot safer. Salt Lake City is really bad because yeah. of it. We have really big blocks, yeah. (laughs) I got to tell you, statistically, what saves Salt Lake City is that uh, is all the Mormons not drinking. Honestly, no, I'm not. I'm I'm not being funny. I mean, if if Salt Lake City uh, citizens drank like the rest of America, it would be one of the deadliest places to be a pedestrian in America. And it's not. It's it's not safe, but it's not. It's not the worst because of uh, because drunk drinking is a huge factor in these uh, sure crashes. so uh, block size matters. The number of lanes matters. Uh, I do a lot of plans in cities where we find out where their extra lanes are. And even where the even where traffic is running rampant, you find many places where streets are oversized. You can certainly find those in Salt Lake. Sure. Um, yeah, one of the things um, I've been really interested with your work is is the focus just on like lane width, too. So the idea yeah. that we have, four, you know, 14 foot uh, wide lanes, but bring them down to 11 or 10 foot. And how big of a difference that makes as far as safety yeah, I mean, is concerned. I mean, the, the, the evidence from study is very clear that narrower lanes cause slower driving. You might take that for granted. What, what, you wouldn't, what you would find surprising is that until quite recently, most traffic engineers and certainly most state traffic engineers uh, would attest that wider lanes are safer. Um, that's, based on, that's based on experience on highways in which people set their speed based on the speed limit, right? Mm-hmm. But when you're setting your speed based on the lane width, there, there's been a fundamental unwillingness to recognize that that uh, environment influences behavior. That's kind of at the mm-hmm. at the foundation of the the black hole in thinking of the traffic engineering profession is a fundamental unwillingness to recognize that environment impacts behavior either in terms of speeding or in terms of traffic. So it's a two part sure. deal, right? So not only do they not until recently understand that a narrower road is safer because people drive slower, they also believed that widening streets would 
eliminate traffic congestion. Eliminate traffic, they still, yeah. <laughs> they still act as if an extra lane will make the traffic go away when every study shows you that within four years, the traffic will be back stronger than ever. And often it's immediately um, because environment impacts behavior. The principal constraint to driving is congestion. So when you remove yeah, it, yeah. more people drive. Um, anyway, so there's lane width, number of lanes. Uh, there's the radius of curvature of the curbs at the corners. You know, can you swoop around fast or do you do you go more slowly? Uh, there's mm -hmm. all sorts of little details around necking down intersections and, of course, protecting bike lanes and doing other things that that kind of remind people that the roadway is shared. Parallel parking is a super there's a demand for it is a super important barrier that protects the sidewalk from moving vehicles as our street trees. Um, and when I work in cities, these are the things we fix. I, I've just completed my 15th walkability study, uh, this one for Mobile, Alabama, and um, they're all quite similar in that they identify which usually 9 to 11 of these issues um, are impacting pedestrian safety, and they go about fixing them. Um, and that's a super important category. The the I can group together the final two categories of comfortable and interesting. Yeah, yeah that's fine. You can just go, say go that, for those, that, yeah. Um, you know, if we're bored, we'll turn around. If we're bored, <laughs> we'll turn around. And also, if we don't feel comfortable, and comfort is misunderstood um, very much uh, that uh, planners neglect the fact that we learn from the evolutionary biologists that all animals, including humans, are simultaneously seeking prospect and refuge. Prospect mm. is being able to see your predators before they get you. And refuge means feeling that your flanks are covered. And this feeling of having your flanks are covered comes from being in a place with good edges, um, with street walls that are tall enough to make the space feel enclosed, like an outdoor living room. And so when you're designing a public space, you have to ask yourself, how, how, how substantial are the edges and how continuous are they? If you, I have all these wonderful pictures of European squares and plazas and the kind of places that you pay a ton of money to get on a plane to inhabit for just you know a few hours of your life <laughs> because they're just so appealing in ways that we can't even explain. And in these pictures, you can't even see out. There's not even a way. There's not even a way for your eye to leave the square. Um, yeah. Most American squares, of course, are are bleeding. The edges are cut with streets and arterials and other things that 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 destroy that street edge. But the more complete um, and properly, you know, high, properly tall edge that you have to your space, the more comfortable it's going to be, and it's something you feel in your bones. And then, of course, if you don't hide the parking lots, surface or structure, if you don't uh, put murals on the blank walls, if you don't have variety in building types, if you don't hand out the architectural job to more than one dude with his big firm, right? Yeah. <laughs> You're going to end yeah. up with, with, with a monotonous and boring outcome, which can be just as bad as an uncomfortable one. So um, anything you can do to make the streetscape more lively is also helpful, although I would say less, less important than safe. Um, and just to give you a taste of what that means, there's something we've been using now for 15 years that has only recently begun to be discussed in the literature. And it's in my most recent book, Walkable City Rules. And it's mm -hmm. the demise line. And the demise line. Oh, yeah. Which, I read about this. Which we've implemented in many projects is if you've got a building that's 200 feet long, pretend it's more than one building. You know, in many yeah. buildings, are 300 feet, 400 feet long. 
if it's if it's not a monument, if it's not a concert hall, if it's not something which you know embodies the shared aspirations of a society and doesn't need to be celebrated with a massive, you know, special form, um, because it isn't right. It's typically just housing or an office yeah. building. Then then pretend require the architects to pretend that it's more than one building, and that way when you walk down the street, you get the feeling that that something's changing, something's happening as you're going down the street, and now. Typically, when we have a, a piece of housing to design that's more than 100 feet long, um, we will create this artificial barrier in the middle of it or on one side of the middle of it and say um, to the architects, if you can't convincingly, um, you know, if you can't convince us with your design that this is two different buildings, then we're going to hire a second architect for the second half. So get to get do that to a facade. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say about that because it seems like it seems like there is this risk that it can look I've, – I've seen things like this done poorly. It can turn out kind of cartoonish if it's not done well, right? Can I tell you what makes it look poor is that the people these days – and it's become the standard, certainly in the, in the mountain states, uh, the standard <laughs> for, for, for uh, apartment design is this pastiche of 100 different pieces on a facade because uh, okay, there, yeah. there, there's, um, there's this fear of scale. There's mm-hmm. this this worry that the neighbors will complain, um, and there's kind of a lack of compositional skill among typical architects. Um, yeah. So the typical multifamily building that you see now, built recently, has you know six different colors, four different materials, yeah. uh, six different window types, and Tons of articulation, uh, and and just over articulated you know rabbit on steroids and. The, the outcome, of course, is not one of, of change as you walk down the street. It's just one giant lump of confusion. And so that, mm-hmm. that doesn't solve the problem. Uh, a, a demise line actually does solve the problem by, by requiring multiple simple facades as opposed to one crazy facade. Gotcha. Yeah. You know, one thing that's interesting that, uh, speaking of interesting, one that you pointed out was uh, you said safety always comes first. So your focus uh, most of the time is going to be on safety. Um, And one thing I was kind of thinking about as I was looking at these the other day is there's a little bit of like a Maslow's hierarchy going on here. You have like, Mm -hmm. as far as useful and safe, you're providing for people's needs. And then with comfortable and interesting, it becomes more of these aesthetic concerns as far as like how can we make a a place people want to be. Um, which I think is, is to the credit of it, uh, as far as, um, you know, recognizing that, that these cities ought to be more, more than just functional. And of course, yeah, you do want them to be, to be safe first. Um, well, you know, no one's, no one's ever said that before. I think that's very intelligent because you do need all four, but it's, it is totally a hierarchy because let's face it. If there's no reason to walk, then yeah. no one will walk. You know, the only people yeah. who walk are for exercise and that doesn't really count, right? Secondly, mm-hmm. if the walk isn't safe, then you're actually physically endangered walking. Oh, yeah. Yet if the, walk, if the walk isn't comfortable, you're not physically endangered, but you're psychologically threatened. And yeah. then finally, if it's not interesting, well, there's no real threat at all, but you're just bored so you don't do it. <laughs> so so there, there is clearly a hierarchy there. And I, I'm going to think about that as I present it in the future because that's an interesting twist on the conversation. Yeah, cool. I mean, it, it kind of gets back to, I think, some of the original things you were talking about at the beginning. Um, and it, it kind of makes me think about, and I think there's this 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 problem as far as uh, 
you know, putting art and function in their own, own kind of boxes. There's this quote from Rem Coolhouse in the book um, where he talks about how you got to take all these risks and be uncritical and be willing to fail and all this stuff. And as I was reading that, I was like, you know, that's a great pep talk for like a gallery artist or like right. someone that does art like I do, where it's like, yes, yeah, swing for the fences, but like it doesn't work when it comes to urban design. Um, and so I wonder, I think that's one thing that's kind of interesting is just that the way there is that intersection that it's like, you need to create something that's, that's beautiful, but also something that's functional that people can actually use, you know, well, you can go classic, wrong both ways. You know. It's the classic tension that exists in architecture, but I think is more easily resolved in urban planning, mm-hmm. which is it's both an art and a profession. Mm-hmm. And um, that's why, you know, I love doing the work because it really requires you to, to develop all of these facilities. Right. But the, um, you know, when you, when you fail with a painting, no one really suffers except the galleries. <laughs> and when you fail yeah. with it, with a house, well, the owner can typically move out, particularly if it's a star architect doing something groundbreaking for a, uh, you know, a, a risky client. Uh, when you fail with public housing, of course, that's a whole other story. But when you fail yeah. with the when you fail with the organization of a municipality, um, <laughs> it's there's a lot of blood on your hands, and and literally as well as figuratively, um, with the outcomes and the the, the public health impacts of the uh, suburban sprawl uh, movement uh, have been as negative on Americans than, than I think anything else that's been done to hurt Americans. <laughs> and oh, and it, does, it does all boil down to driving. Unfortunately, you know, and I grew up loving cars and I still, I still, mm-hmm. um, you know, drool about thinking about the car that I'd like to buy next. Um, but you know, it was one thing to uh, enjoy the the speed and the beauty of of these incredible machines. It's another thing to redesign your entire society around the assumption that everyone's going to be driving them, hit by them, and uh, choking on their fumes. So uh, that's where we are. Yeah, um, I think that's one of the things that that also gets me excited about walkability is there's such a huge impact that us getting it wrong has. Um, I, I like uh, what's it James Kunstler's uh, rephrasing of it that it's the the biggest misallocation of resource in the history of mankind something yeah, like that. Yeah. But it's also one of these things we're in a time when people are very frustrated about about the direction I guess the country or the world is going, and they want to find a way to make a difference. And it's one of these things where because it's happening locally, people actually have the the ability to affect you know, the outcome of, of walkability in their own neighborhood. And that can make a huge effect on, on all these issues that, that people care about. I, I draw a very clear connection between suburbanization and um, what should I call it? And, and uh, let's just say an inability to empathize with people who are different from, uh, from ourselves. Sure. So, yeah. so uh, I don't just mean the suburbs of, of the, early 20th century or before, but I mean the specific organization of the suburban landscape, which by mid 20th century was being very minutely sorted by price point. Oh yeah. And the idea that, that every apartment cluster, every condo cluster, every housing subdivision or, or luxury estate has homes in it of a very narrow range of prices. And in fact, the real estate consultants would tell you that was the way, 
to sell real estate, which is to, to create at every, at every price level, a feeling of exclus exclusivity and, um, uh, snobbery. And, uh, yeah. because there's so little variation in the price point of the homes in our communities, we are only living with people who share our income strat stratum. It's not just, you know, you know, we've segregated by a lot of different characteristics in our country over the years. And of course, you can't yeah. tell the story of sprawl without describing the tremendous degree that it was caused by racism. And that's a discussion that we need to have. Um, mm -hmm. uh, the book, The Color of Law, which is the best selling planning book right now. Uh, needs that's to be a fantastic read, one. Need, needs to be read by everyone. Um, yeah. But but the idea that, uh, you know, in almost any place built since 1950, you're only living with people of similar, almost identical income has, I think, had a tremendously terrible effect on our, our ability as Americans to see through the eyes of other Americans. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's very true. And it's, it's, I think the one thing that's empowering is it's mostly a local problem. This is all written into law, you know, through our zoning saying, you know, only certain types of houses can be next to other types of houses. Right. Um, but it's, it's something that you have, we have the opportunity on a local level to actually make a difference with. I mean, you can, you can show up in Washington, DC with millions of people and may maybe not make a difference, but you know, you can show up to your local planning meeting and you can, you can turn, turn the, the dial there potentially. Well, absolutely. Um, so, you know, the, there's a new law in a number of States, but in, there's a new one in Massachusetts, for example, that uh, if you're building a, development with significant housing near transit um, rather than a two thirds majority to approve it. The zoning board only needs a 50%, 51% majority to approve hmm. it. Um, so even at the state level, uh, as well as the federal level, I mean, laws can be enacted <laughs> that would change this. Uh, one big movement that's happening nationally is the elimination of single family zoning you know, in certain areas, which Trump even That's spoke to, to see. as a huge yeah. threat to the uh, implied uh, lily white suburbs. Um, in fact, in implementation in, in real life, what it does is it allows people to build accessory dwelling units that they can rent out, you know, uh, garage apartments and granny flats that they can rent out to other people. It allows for, you know, the occasional home to be replaced by a twoplex or a fourplex. Um, <clears throat> it's not alone going to solve the housing crisis we have in our country, but it's an important step towards uh, causing a little bit more integration in our neighborhoods. Yeah. You know, the other thing I've, I've kind of noticed is I've, I've um, gotten more interested in these issues and worked on them locally in my own ways is, is that uh, there's something about urban planning that, that seems to kind of like defy fitting into like predetermined political ideology that as I work on these issues, like the politics, the individual politics of the people I'm working with becomes less important. And it becomes much more about like, here's this problem we're working on together. Um, and so I wonder if, if, have you observed that to be the same case at all um, as you've, as you've been working on this? Yeah, I would say, you know, I've probably made profound changes in terms of street design and downtown plans and other things in more red cities than blue ones. Interesting. Um, I've found a tremendous openness to um, just higher quality outcomes in conservative communities. 
Uh, and and I, I think it's often due to the business focus where cities want to be competitive. They want to attract talent. They understand that the talent these days is quite mobile and uh, people are first moving to where they want to be and then looking for work as opposed to how it used to be. Um, and so cities like Oklahoma City uh, or Elkhart, Indiana, other places I work are generally uh, often uh, pretty, pretty conservative or Republican, but um, in no way averse to making their downtowns better. And, uh, uh, you know, why would they be? Yeah, that's cool. Uh, well, um, that's a pretty good uh, summary of, of walkability. That was, I'm pretty amazed you're able to do that in, within an hour's time. <laughs> well, this is, you know, this, is what, this is what I do. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of good planners. Honestly, uh-huh. there's, there, now it, it didn't used to be the case. There were uh-huh. only, there, there were 20 years ago, only a few good planning firms in the country. Now there's hundreds and the typical mm-hmm. municipal planner uh, now has a better understanding of how to do the right thing. Um, my, my main role I, I've found is to communicate these things to a broader audience. Um, mm. I would take this opportunity to tell your audience that if they're interested in the subject matter, um, the, the gateway drug is Walkable City. The book Walkable City, Good. which yeah. I wrote in, uh, well, which came out in 2012, um, is still one of the top selling books in, in land use uh, planning and whatever that category might be. Um, and um, it's just, it's, you know, it was written to be fun to read. It's written for everyone. You can get it on Audible. Hear my, my mellifluous tones uh, <laughs> in studio. Um, and that's a really just a fun first, you know, step to discussing these issues. For folks who are doing the work, who are actually active, either as activists or in government or professionals, the newer book, Walkable, Walkable City Rules, is is more for them. It's 101 steps cool. to making um, better places. And it's got a ton of, as you know, a ton of pictures and graphs and charts and data um, that you can act on. Uh, it's not just, you know, creative nonfiction like Walkable City. Um, and then, and then uh, if you want to know a bit about where it all came from, and particularly to discuss the whole towns versus sprawl conversation, then Suburban Nation is, is the book I would, I would recommend of the ones I've worked on. Um, yeah. Jane Jacobs book, The Death and Life of Great American Cities remains kind of the Bible of the planning that we do these days, even though it's, it's so out of date, it is not outdated and it's, um, it's worth reading as well. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's that's a great list. Yeah, I just started digging into walkable city rules and it's fantastic. Cause I mean that's that's where my head is. It's like I want to I want to see what difference I can actually make, you know, in my own community. So a lot of really cool great. ideas in there. So um yeah. So Jeff, thanks again for joining me today. This was really fun and interesting. Um yeah, and uh hopefully we can have another conversation like this sometime in the future. Well, I enjoyed the questions and uh I appreciate what you do. Um, folks who want to learn even more can just go to my website, jeffspeck.com. Um, and there's a ton of resources there, including a bunch of videos and everything else. If you don't read books. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. That works for some people too. Yeah. All right. Well, it was a pleasure. Thank you. All right. Thanks again, Jeff. You've been listening to how to be an artist to support this podcast. You can go to patreon.com forward slash H2BNA.